Hey, podcast listeners, want to let you know about a slight change happening to your podcast subscription in the new year. Come January 1, if you have been previously subscribed to this podcast, you will find yourself unsubscribed because we're making a switch in podcast hosts. I barely understand it myself. But what I do need to tell you is that once the new year comes, you need to search Apple Podcasts or Spotify for this podcast under the same name and resubscribe. You'll have access to all of the old content and new content will automatically be uploaded to your device. So thank you for your patience with that. And we look forward to bringing you more content as we go along. How many of you have used a GPS system in the last little while? Probably lots of you. We rely on these things quite a lot these days. I did just the other week. I was in downtown Vancouver. I can get myself to Vancouver, no problem. But once I'm downtown with all of the streets and the one-way streets, I often get myself turned around. So I had my phone hooked into my car and it was telling me where to turn and I got to where I needed to go. Now, if you're older than 20 or 25, uh, you'll remember that before GPS was worked into our phones and into our consoles on our cars, you actually had to buy a separate GPS unit. Of course, before that, you had to buy a map book. But before that, you had to buy a, a GPS unit. You'd buy a brick and you'd bring it into your car and you'd plug it into your car charger. My family had one of those. We named her Clara and Clara was a handy companion for quite a lot of years on a lot of trips. My friend and I did a road trip once and Clara guided us all the way down to Phoenix and then the next day we drove to Los Angeles. Now as we got into Los Angeles, we were on a six-lane highway and we were trying to find my friend's aunt and uncle's house where we were going to stay the night. We had no idea where we were going, and all of a sudden, we consulted Clara, and Clara thought that we were in the middle of the ocean. We could see the ocean from the highway, and so Clara wasn't that far off, but it wasn't really all that helpful to us to be told we were in the ocean when we were on this busy LA freeway with no idea where to go. We had to turn Clara on and off a bunch of times, and finally, she caught up with us and told us where we needed to go. You know, there's kind of a celestial GPS element to the Christmas story where the wise men follow this star and find the baby Jesus. But one thing I, I don't think I've really ever paid attention to in the Christmas story until this year was the fact that the wise men followed the star and they didn't get directly to Jesus, a lot, at least not right away. They actually ended up in Jerusalem following the star, and then ended up in Bethlehem. And there's actually some significance in that little detail. So we're going to read the story, and then we'll notice a few things about, uh, about that element of it. Matthew 2, starting in verse 1, reads this way. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. 
And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, some things we need to notice here about the story. The first thing is it tells us that this happened after Jesus was born, and this could have happened up to two years after Jesus was born. So no longer is Jesus lying in a manger. He's actually in a house, maybe even running around already as a little toddler. So whenever you see a nativity scene and the shepherds are standing next to the wise men, it's actually anachronistic. They don't belong in the same time period. Um, So this happens slightly after Jesus is born. Now, King Herod is the next character in the story. We know that he is a, a megalomaniac. Like he is, egotistical and he's insecure. Uh, He was appointed ruler over this province in uh, in the Roman Empire. uh, uh, He's appointed by Rome, but he also had some connection to the Jewish people. So the Romans didn't really like him and the Jewish people didn't really like him because he represented the other side. And this probably contributed to his insecurity. Now, he was a brilliant architect. Some of the things that he built and the buildings that were built under his instruction uh, were fascinating, were, were really impressive. But his leadership was not really the the greatest. He was cruel. In fact, he killed some of his own family members because he thought they were a threat to his power. So this is the guy who's in charge. Uh, The next characters we read about are the Magi, sometimes known as the wise men. What do we know about them? Well, we know that they came from an eastern country, maybe Iran or Iraq or Arabia, maybe the area that's modern-day Turkey might have been where they came from. So they would have come uh, from the east and from the north and come, come down south towards Jerusalem. Now, these guys were probably highly educated. They probably had a good understanding of how the world worked. They might have known things about medicine or astronomy or history Um, They were superstitious. They were looking into the sky for guidance. Astrology would have been important to them. And actually, astrology would have been important to a growing number of Jewish people, even though the Old Testament told them that they should avoid that. Uh, They were probably wealthy. uh, And there was not necessarily just three of them, although we usually think there was three wise men. There was three gifts, three different kinds of gifts that were given, but never tells us how many there are. Chances are their traveling party was bigger than three people uh, on this journey. Now, when you think of the Christmas story, who do you relate with the most? When you think about the shepherds or Mary and Joseph or the wise man or King Herod, who do you normally identify with? I've never really thought to identify myself with the wise men because they seem kind of beyond. They seem like royalty. They seem like super, super smart. Uh, Until this year, when I was listening to a New Testament scholar, Dr. Gary Burge, talk about the wise men, and he suggested that for us in the West, we're probably more like the wise men than maybe we think we are. If you've got a a high school education, you've probably learned a lot of, of things about how the world works, and you probably even just through life experience have opinions about how the world ought to work, some some knowledge about about the way that the world is put together. And so we might be more like the wise men than we think we might be. In the, we- in the West, we're rather wealthy as well. And so 
maybe we identify more with them than we think that we do. So keep that thought in mind because we're going to come back to it. Now, they followed a star, and there's a few opinions as to what this star might have been. Some people think maybe it was a supernova, an exploding star that got super bright for a period of time, and they followed that. Maybe it was a comet, says other people. Halley's Comet, which comes by every 75 years, uh, went by in 11 BC, which is actually probably a few years before Jesus was born in 4, 5, or 6 BC is probably the best guesses there. So probably not that comet, but maybe it was another one. Maybe it was a planetary conjunction. We actually had this happen here last December where Saturn and Jupiter got really close together. And so they seemed like a bright point in the sky. And astronomers say this happened several times around the years when Jesus was born. So maybe it was that. Or maybe it was a supernatural thing that God put there specifically for this purpose. Maybe only the wise men could see it. Maybe everybody could see it. But nonetheless, they saw something and they knew that they should follow it. Now, why did they follow it? Well, they, they knew that in that day that the thought of the time was that the stars and the sky were the realm of the gods. So actually Caesar Augustus was one of the Roman emperors and he was said to have ascended into heaven. And on the coin that the Romans used to commemorate him, it had his picture and a star because this was just seen to be the realm of the gods. So the wise men would have seen this star and said, this is some sort of divine sign that something is happening, that there is a birth. They connected this with a birth that, that has real significance, that has real importance. And they thought so, so strongly that they were compelled to go and take this journey. Now, we see in the story, as I mentioned at the beginning, that the star didn't take them directly to Jesus. It actually took them towards Jerusalem and they stopped in at Jerusalem. Now, why did they do that? Why didn't they just go past Jerusalem and continue to Bethlehem, which is about six miles down the road? Well, there's a, a few thoughts on why they might have stopped. One would have been, if you're following a star, it's kind of generic when you think you're underneath it, right? If I told you, hey, there's a star over Vancouver and underneath you're going to find so-and-so, go and find them, just follow the star, you could get to Vancouver and think that you're right underneath the star, but still be kilometers away from it because it's kind of generic to follow a star. But it also could have been this idea that the wise men followed the star to this generic area and they thought to themselves, if there's a new king that's been born, he certainly must have been born in Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is the center of power. It's, it's the political center of, of where everything happens politically is Jerusalem. So if there's a new king, he must be there because this is the place of power. And so they stop in there. It's like they're, they're going to the United States to find a new king and they stop at the White House because this is where the power resides. This must be where the new king is. And yet this isn't where the new king is. Herod hears this question, where is the new king? And he gets insecure and upset right away. It's kind of like if you were the president of a company and I walked into your office and said, hey, where's the new president? You might be a little confused and alarmed that there's a new president you hadn't heard about. Well, Herod reacts to this and he calls together the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the Jewish leaders, and he says to them, where in the Old Testament does it talk about a new king? And where is the new king supposed to be born? And they immediately know it's Bethlehem. They immediately know that the prophet Micah prophesied this hundreds of years prior and that the new king is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so they tell Herod this. Now, my question is, why did the religious leaders sit there and not do anything? 
Why didn't they go to Bethlehem to see this themselves? I mean, the whole town is in an uproar, so they clearly know that there's something happening, something to do with a new king, and Herod wants to know where, and they tell him, and yet they don't go check it out. I think maybe this tells us that religious people, even though they're filled with knowledge, don't often see what God is doing. Religious people don't often see what God is doing because having a lot of knowledge is not a guarantee that you can see the work of God. So they, know, they learn that Bethlehem is the place. And now the text tells us that the star leads them there and stops over where Jesus is and they come to the right place. They come to Bethlehem, which seems like the opposite of Jerusalem. If Jerusalem is the place of power, Bethlehem is in the shadow of power, but it has no power in and of itself. It's a small little place, nothing significant about it. A few hundred people maybe live there. Uh, it was a poor place, a poor village. Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, was a carpenter, and he probably traveled to a nearby wealthy city to do his work. So Jesus is born here. I was trying to think of what, what, what kind of comparable could we have. And in my experience, I, I thought of when I went to Bible school on the prairies. I went to a place called Karenport, Saskatchewan, which was right on Highway 1. Um, it's not a big place. The school is really the only reason that it exists, probably now anyways. It had a, a history before that. But there's a Bible school, a seminary, an elementary school, and a high school. We had a gas station and a subway and even a hotel but even that was big compared to the place I'm thinking of. This was, Karenport was just north of the highway, but just south was a place called Karen, C-A-R-O-N. And as I drove there one day, because I was invited to someone's house, I noticed a sign that said, welcome to the hamlet of Karen. I didn't even know what a hamlet was, but apparently on the scale of cities and villages and towns, it's like the smallest of the small is a hamlet. There's about 120 people that live there, and it's basically just a few streets with houses, and that's all that there is to it. That's probably kind of what, like what Bethlehem was, is a little tiny little place. Everybody probably knew each other, but there's nothing significant about this place, nothing to set it apart. It's actually in the shadow of what seems like the significant place, and yet it's there that the birth of the Savior takes place to a young couple. It's away from the political power, away from the, the establishment is where Jesus is found. So what's the point of all of this? What, what do I want us to think about today? Well, we are kind of like the wise men in which we presume that we are fairly knowledgeable about how the, wor- the way the world works. We're knowledgeable about politics. We probably have strong opinions about some things, maybe about politics or about how the world should work. And yet we find in the Christmas story that the answers to our deepest questions don't come through simply knowing more. It doesn't come from the establishment of power. It doesn't even come from human ingenuity. It doesn't come through the kingdoms of the earth. And And I mean, there's something to be said there because humans are capable of a lot of great things, right? I I just watched a documentary on Apollo 11 and the the mission to the moon and the the first people to to step on the moon. And watching this documentary was fascinating to see the, the intelligence and the brilliance of the scientists who put all of this together. So many moving parts that all had to work right. And to do so with the technology 50 years ago was just even more amazing. And yet, even with all of the brilliance of mankind and everything that, 
that, that we can produce. The answer to our deepest questions and our deepest longings don't lie in how smart we are and how knowledgeable we are. Instead, we find through this story that those answers are found when we pursue the humility that is demonstrated in Jesus. That it's actually the wisdom of God demonstrated through a baby in a manger who would grow up to die on a cross. That is where we find the ultimate significance. I mean, if you were God, is this how you would write the story? Probably not. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of how Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. He's reflecting on, on these things and, and how God's plan is maybe not how we would have written it up. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. In other words, on our very best day as human beings, we don't even come close to approaching God on his worst day, if that was really a thing. That God's wisdom is so far beyond us. He carries on in verse 27. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let, no, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The idea is this, God's ways are the best ways. His ways are the best ways and God works in surprising ways. And Christmas reminds us that when Jesus came to earth as a child, this represents the wisdom of God. He was born in a lowly kind of way, outside of the established wisdom of the world. And yet it's there that we find what we need to solve our greatest need. And that need is our need to be forgiven, our need for freedom from our sin and the things that hold us back, freedom from the darkness in this world and the darkness that lives inside of us. We cannot access this by trying harder to achieve on our own. We cannot learn it from a textbook. We cannot simply outsmart our way into God's kingdom. It's actually humbling ourselves before this child like the wise men did. And when we find Jesus, we give up on our striving and we give up on our arguments and we find Jesus waiting for us with open arms and he meets us in our weakness and our desperation. You know, there's, there's something else going on in the story Matthew writes. Uh, he's writing in Matthew 2 about the journey of the wise men to baby Jesus, but he's actually foreshadowing some things that will happen when Jesus dies on the cross. Matthew wants us to keep the whole picture in mind. N.T. Wright points these things out. He says, there's another way in which this story points ahead to the climax of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Jesus will finally come face to face with the representative of the world's greatest king when he stands before Pilate, the, the representative of Caesar. And Pilate will have rather different gifts to give to Jesus, though Pilate too is warned in a dream not to do anything to Jesus. Pilate's soldiers are the first Gentiles, the first non-Jewish people since the Magi to call Jesus the king of the Jews. But the crown they give him is made of thorns and his throne is a cross. At that moment, the moment of Jesus' death, instead of a bright star announcing Jesus' birth, there will be an unearthly darkness that covers the world out of which we hear a single Gentile voice say, yes, he really was God's son. 
Listen to the whole story Matthew is saying and think about what it means for Jesus to be the true king and then come to him by whatever route you can with the best gifts that you can find. This story of Jesus that starts in a manger and ends on a cross and then with a miraculous resurrection is exactly the wisdom that we need to satisfy the deepest longing of our souls. And so the question that approaches us on Christmas this year is, have you bent the knee to King Jesus? Will you be like the wise men with all of their knowledge and all of their training and all of their wealth to put all of that aside to say the true meaning in life is found in Jesus, and I will humble myself before him. Will you be willing to trade the wisdom of the world for the wisdom of God? To trade the the images of cultural success to kneel before this baby in a manger, to bow before the feet of this two-year-old who would grow up to be the savior of the world, to embrace the wisdom of God. Maybe you've never done that before and you actually need to admit your need for him to confess that your sin has separated you from him and to invite him to be the king of your life. Or maybe this year you find yourself like the chief priests and the teachers of the law, very religious, you know a lot, and yet you're not really looking for what God might be doing in this world. Maybe you need to humble yourself afresh before his feet. Again, listen, God's ways are the best ways, and we see it playing out in the Christmas story. So what will your response be to King Jesus this year? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the wisdom of God that is displayed even in the most surprising of ways. In the Christmas story, through the birth of Jesus in a manger and And then ultimately through the cross of Jesus and the resurrection, we thank you for this gift. Father, forgive us for when we think we've figured things out on our own. And may we be totally committed and surrendered to what you want to do in us and in our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.